Welcome to Control the Controllables. My name is John McGahan from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland, and I'm here with my co-host, Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we have created a podcast, bringing some of the top tennis athletes and tennis coaches from across the globe together. We hope you enjoy our next episode. Welcome to episode 46 of Control the Controllables. Today we have Barry Fulcher on the show. Barry was a fantastic tennis player. I, I actually was grew up playing with Barry with the same age. Uh, he's been through a journey uh, from his playing career onto his coaching career to, to receiving the news of, of him having cancer and coming through that with a completely different perspective on life. Uh, he's a fantastic coach. He's one of tennis's really good guys, like really good guys. I can't speak highly enough of Barry. I, I, I really can't. Um, he he lives and breathes tennis. He's he's selfless in what he's doing. And three years ago, he set up the Progress Tour, which, as you'll find out through the podcast, his motivations behind that. Uh, but ultimately. It's it's certainly not a, a money maker for him. It's about giving the people the opportunity to organically compete. He came to the forefront a couple of weeks ago when the Progress Tour ladies event took place at the NTC and the BBC BBC took that on board. But again, listen out on the podcast because he still didn't make any money out of it. You know that's not his motivation. Uh, albeit, it would be nice for for the guys like Barry who are doing so much for British tennis and competition to be rewarded and I'm and I'm sure that that will happen that will happen one day uh, he's he's an absolute star so I'm sure you guys are going to love listening to him and I'm going to pass you over now to to Barry Fulcher so Barry Fulcher a big welcome to control the controllables hello sir and first question have you have you got your wi-fi sorted today yeah, a stable, stable Wi-Fi environment. A little bit better than a cricket field in the middle of St George's Hill. I did think when, for those listening, you don't get the visual that I get when I'm speaking to the guests. And Barry picked up the phone and it was wobbling everywhere and he looked like he was he was outside. And we thought we'd give it a go. And 15 minutes in, and I must say he was fantastic in that 15 minutes. <laughs> All of a sudden he disappeared. So hopefully he's with us for the duration this time. Yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> um, so a little introduction, Barry Fulcher. Um, singles career high of 719, doubles career high of 498. Uh, definitely played to a higher level than that. Uh, we'll get to some of the reasons why maybe he didn't quite go any further um, in, with his playing career, but then has also continued playing into the oldies and has been ranked very high in the world for the over 35, still in great shape, still playing very well. And, and then has turned his hand to setting up the Progress Tour, which he's been working extremely hard on the last two or three years and then has come to fruition in, onto your screens over the last few weeks. Uh, with with the progress to the ladies event down at Roehampton so uh, a massive welcome and 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 I guess the first question I have to ask throughout this time Baz is you know how how are things with you during these these times 
Yeah, well, thank you for having me on, first of all, Kino. It's great to uh, chat. Uh, yeah, we, I mean, I had a funny time through lockdown, really. We, uh, I think, like yourselves, from a coaching capacity, I run a program down in Sussex. Um, and after a brief kind of week of gathering ourselves into lockdown, we started a, a remote academy, which is fantastic to, to keep people busy as we adjusted into yeah. lockdown life, really. Um, but yeah, we kind of found our way through that and it was a great way to keep in touch with the players. Um, and it gave, gave us all a chance to step back. You know, you mentioned the progress tour there, that the women's event that, that fairly early, early on in lockdown became a focus for me planning for that. So yeah. it was a chance to step, step back really and kind of look at things and look what could be done that hadn't been done up to that point. Um, but it took some adjusting, that's for sure. Yeah. And it seems like there's a, and we'll get to the progress too in a minute, but it seems like there's quite a big opportunity right now for domestic events, which is obviously what you've been pushing for the last few years. Yeah, 100%. I mean, uh, the, if you look at some of the events that have come out, uh, the woodwork, um, talk to Richard Joyner, who runs the British Tour a lot, talk to the guys at St George's Hill. I mean, if one, one thing can come out of this period that's a bit of a silver lining, it's that we we realise the importance of domestic competition and British players at the moment, you know, off the back of what we saw last week with Jamie's second Battle of Brits event. I mean, it, it just shows how amazing British tennis is and, you know, how much we need that domestic element that perhaps we haven't uh, capitalised on up to this point. Yeah, and how, and I mean, I have to admit the last few days I've been, I've been stuck to my phone watching, watching the Battle of the Brits, you know, and obviously concluded yesterday. And just the team, the team event format, I, I have to say I'm a personal lover of as well. It reminds me very much of, of US college tennis and, and seeing Andy Murray and Dan Evans and Kyle Edmund and Heather Watson and seeing all of these, all of these fantastic names getting stuck in and then the youngsters getting stuck in with it. What are your thoughts on the, on the team format and, and what future that has in the game? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, uh, fairly early on in lockdown when I was talking to Jamie about his plans for various events, it was, you know, probably second week into it, he was already thinking of the, the team event. Um, and I think it, it held a little something special compared to any other event I've seen in this period, you know, even more than the first Battle of the Brits. Yeah. The way it, it kind of bridged levels of players, it bridged male to female. I think, you know, as he said yesterday, I think you couldn't have wished for it to be any, any better. And it was so good to see so many different, you know, the stratas of British tennis come together from the captains to, you know, Greg and, and Judy as well, down to, you know, Andy, all the way down to the, you know, the, player 13 on the team it was so so entertaining to watch it and I think it, again it shows how how important domestic tennis is but also how important team tennis is it's, it's yeah. what other countries do well and do a lot of and it's I think something we could really uh, invest in a little more at yeah. that level particularly. No I agree I mean I always I mean I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan this is certainly not me putting down county week and county cups because I'm a big fan of it but I've always felt that those sort of team events are, are when cultures are passed on and, and often habits are passed on, you know, and, and if we go back to, you know, our days of, of starting to play county weeks, county cups, 
age 14 and 15, I guess, depending on which county you're in, you might have had some bad habits passed on to you, um, you know, and, and watching yesterday or watching these last few days, just seeing how we've got multiple Grand Slam champions, we've got Sir Andy Murray, that's getting so heavily involved at that at that level that's when true cultures can be passed on and 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 i guess it moves me into a question i'd love to ask you as, as well baz has been someone that's the same age as myself i never felt we had that when we were younger we, it was almost like the ceiling was a bit set a bit low and and the top top players even in britain were almost unattainable Whereas it feels like maybe the 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 play, the Murrays in particular who have who've achieved so much globally with events like this, it just opens the doors and opens the eyes for these youngsters to believe that they can play at that level. I don't know what you think of that. Yeah, hundred percent. I guess uh, going back to our many moons ago, uh, yeah. when we were, well, when we were growing up, that you had Dim, Tim and Greg, and uh, there was, I suppose, a, a big division and whilst I was playing, probably you were playing at the same time, that the, the integration wasn't quite there. There was the national champs, but um, yeah, it was, I suppose that the levels were, were too different, I guess. And that yeah. was what was so good. To, you know, I spoke to uh, one of the girls that I did the, you know, helped with the progress tour, Alicia Barnett. She just said it was the best week of her life last week. You know, meeting people that becoming friends with people and players that she would never yeah. normally mix with. And I think, you know, if it, if it achieves just that, that's amazing in itself is that you, you grow that, that team culture that, that sometimes we, we've been accused of missing out on. And I think, you know, if it can achieve that, then that is, uh, you know, it's worth its weight in gold. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just to take you back a couple of weeks, I'm sure hopefully you've recovered because, again, to those listening, Barry is the mastermind behind the Progress Tour and, and everything that went on a couple of weeks ago. Give us a little insight into what it takes to put on an event like that on. Uh, it was uh, immense is what I would say, yeah. one word. Um, it was huge. And I, we, I suppose... Second week of April, I, I started um, talking. You know, I talked to Jamie. I knew he had plans to run an event. And I talked about, I suppose, trying to expand the offering to more players, male and female. Um, and then I was approached by a couple of female players, Alicia, who I mentioned, and Olivia Nichols. Yeah. Um, and along with a, another chap who was up for putting a bit of money into a women's equivalent of the Battle of the Brits. So it was quite... You know, in, in terms of the normal event planning, I think, you know, that some of the bigger events will plan for a whole year getting ready for production, TV, uh, you know, putting the, the ops that are involved to put it together as substantial. So we, from start to finish, were probably nine to ten weeks. Um, and I'm at, I think, think when we talked before, I said, you know, I'm used to doing things all of these events, I'm water boy, I'm, I'm um, you know, referee, tournament director, ball boy. I'm used to doing it myself, yeah. uh, just purely from a financial perspective, just trying to keep costs down. Um, and I, I did a lot of the early, the early stuff myself. It was significant just trying to, you know, sorting out various deals and trying to get TV sorted, contracts, uh, searching for sponsors. And the, the girls were a great help, as was Terry Oaks. Um, but as we 
I suppose got a clearer picture of the, the you know, the, the world we're living in and the COVID regulations, the, the medical scenarios, the testing. Yeah. It was pretty overwhelming. And I, I then kind of sought help. Um, and Jamie actually put me in touch with a, a chap, Dave Malia, who, who was COVID officer and head of ops for the Battle of Brits. I think both events he did. And uh, yeah, I mean, he was amazing to have on board. To, yeah. we, we, we had you know, 35, 40 page documents that had to be put together. Yeah. Every eventuality that, that has to, had to be thought of to yeah. make sure the event was safe. Um, I mean, the one word I said was immense and I'd go yeah. back to that. It was, it was substantial uh, yeah. work and cost to get the event uh, up and going. And things, things changed, changing all the time. We changed yeah. venues. Um, the regulations were changing. We had to adapt. So it was significant, but you know, as things wore on, it was, it you know, it grew into something that was much bigger than I suppose we originally planned, uh, and that's something to be proud of. But it was, you yeah. know, it just made the workload even bigger. But it was, it was exciting to see it come to fruition. Oh, well done, mate! And and as the as the costs grew, did you did your backers go with that, or did that cause any issues? Yeah, it, it was. It's it's a challenge. Yeah, I I, uh, I won't lie. Um, yeah, I got some uh, a bit a pot of money that was in, and I put into, I suppose, put all of it into the prize fund to try and make it an appealing yeah. uh, proposition for players. Um, that was before we kind of fully appreciated the you know the medical costs. Yeah, and that 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 somewhat spiraled. So we had a new partners come on board. Um, to, you know to run an event during the week we had there was there was support there to bring the cost down but it was by no stretch a money maker um and one that i'll be covering the cost of for a, for a little while yet um so yeah it was it it grew bigger um and i think we in the current climate for whatever reason it was tougher to secure a, a lead sponsor that would have you know, covered the whole event and made it a bit more comfortable. But it was it was pretty stressful. The kind of lead up to it and during the event it was it was pretty full on, really. And and that there, I guess, again for those listening, you, you hear all the time. Oh, why don't we just put more tournaments on? Why doesn't this just happen? Why doesn't this just happen? But the realities are, it takes certain individuals like yourself who who for the absolute love of the game, the passion you have for competition, the passion you have for British tennis is willing to put yourself in, in, in that sort of position where, where potentially, you know, financially you're, you're missing out. There's just not going to be that many people out there doing it. So, so what's the answer? I'm in my third year of the progress tour. Uh, I haven't run an event on the scale of the the progress tour women's champs. I've run, I suppose, a number of money events that, uh, I haven't had funded funding at all. I've funded it through entry fees, you know, support from smaller sponsors. You know, Sarah, who you know, Tennis Smart, have been a big backer of the the tour. But I've I've self funded it, I suppose, for for three, getting into my third year, and it's not it's not yet. I suppose this year it was getting to a point where it was what I wanted it to be to be a bona fide prize money tour for aspiring players you know somewhere equivalent to the progress to uh, to the 
premier British tours, if you like, where, where yeah. pro players can earn a profit from playing it. Um, and this year we, we started to get to a point where I had a bit more backing um, for the for the tour itself, which enabled me to devote more time to it because it's not my full-time job. It's a passion. Um, and it, it, it's, a, it's been a costly passion, but I feel like we started to, to press forward with it. Um, what's the answer is, you know, what words we've seen in this period is that it, with the, the gap, if you like, and the chasm of nothing happening, enterprise has come to the fore and you've got a couple of guys from IMG that put the, the St. George's Hill, the UK Pro Series together. Um, I think that there is a, perhaps a culture that's been here that, you know, one is waiting for our governing body to do something um, that, you know, may or may not happen, but it, 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 it ultimately falls down to, you know, why should we wait? Why can't, can't it be those three chaps from IMG or myself or Jamie or anybody that goes, right, I want to run a tournament. Yeah. That enterprise can flourish and it has flourished in this period that we, we see it can be done. And, you know, there's never been, ironically, there's never been a better time to be a British player in the UK at the moment. There's so many opportunities. Yeah, beyond this time I hope like I said at the you know from the outset and I know Richard joiners of the same thinking is to to use this period as a catalyst to go right we we know how important it is what why can't we do this yeah. when when we return to the new normal as it were because we know how important it is to keep players going yeah so blunt question two and a half years running progress tour have you lost money yes Blunt answer, which is but which is amazing, do you know. And that's, I mean, I I know you, you're a good friend of mine, and I know you're an amazing guy to to do that. But but that's that is the real that's the real situation. So you can't keep losing money. So where does the progress to go next? At the turn of the year, I I uh, had a conversation with an old friend of mine. Um, you would know him, um, who. You know, talk through what plans I have for the Progress Tour. Talk through the, the the Jamie Murray double series that Jamie and I kind of talked about putting together, and we've cancelled this year. Um, and it's the first time I had support for it, and I had a budget to to do things a bit more properly. Yep. Um, and that was exciting. It, it felt like you know the the value in what what I've done for the last two and a half years and the the underlying passion I had for it was uh, there was you know some some uh, fruit at the end of it as it were that yeah. not that it again would be a huge money maker for me but the progress tour would grow into what I first saw it being which was that that bona fide prize money tour um, yeah it's been it, like I said it hasn't it's never been about making money for me it's been yeah. about it grew out of a frustration for me at a group of players that I coached that there was nothing to play. There was no ranking events. There was no money events. So I, rather than complain about it, I set it up and my passion kind of grew for, for doing it. I loved doing it. And I loved the, the first event back in the summer of 2017. I loved setting it up and the players responding to it because there is such a need for it. Um, so this year, I mean, ironically, it's been a pretty broken year with, with what's gone on, but it was the first year that, I felt a bit more stable and being able to plan okay. and go, right, this is it. Yeah. 
And then we've got the progress to a Soto tennis, which uh, again, from a personal point of view, we just absolutely loved. We absolutely loved it. Was a, it was an amazing week. Um, I guess we saw firsthand what goes into it as well. And that's just running one event. We also saw firsthand that you were you were in constant contact with the referee. So even though you weren't there, it was it was a big, big move. But let's get it let's get it on this podcast. Is is that gonna go ahead this year? Can we can we start getting it rocking and rolling? Hundred percent, yeah. I mean I'm I I had events planned August September and I'm just, we're just waiting for things to be clearer here but I'm really keen to get an adjusted calendar out there and number one on the calendar is the Soto yeah. event for sure and we need to get you out you know that needs to be part of the funding we look for to be able to get you a flight out for a few days because it did I mean last year again to any players listening you know October the 21st I believe is the date you know last year I think we had 70 players playing the event 1,000 euros for the winner we had about a hundred people watching the final, and we're we're excited to be a part of it again. Um, so, really looking forward to it. Yeah, I think uh, you know we we've ran another progress tour in Tenerife. I've been approached by you know for doing a couple of other progress tour events in different countries, and it's something that I'm uh, looking at a little bit more detail at the moment is to spread the wings, as it were. Uh, the ethos behind it, I think, has proved quite popular and. And to bring those events to other countries and you know academies like yourselves that you know there is everybody wants good tournaments players need it and it, i think it's a great way to bring people together and I'm, we're just looking at that exploring that option at the moment a bit further afield as well no great and and what i'd what i'd love to do and i'm sure the listeners would love to know is the the upbringing of of someone like yourself who you've had success on the tennis court you now bringing almost an unrivaled passion to competition, certainly in Britain, you know, and I think over the next 20, 30 minutes, I'd love to kind of dig under the bonnet of Barry Fulcher a little bit and see why he ticks how he ticks. Um, so going a long way back, 1980, 1980 boy, um, where did your tennis all begin? Oh, wow. Um, I'm one of five Irish-born family um but lived lived in the uk for most of my life and uh I, my mother is as fiery a competitor as you'll come across at anything um so she was a good squash player good tennis player and i think uh, from an early age we were on court or around a tennis court squash court at the local club uh, my brother older brother played to you know his decent national junior level and we, I suppose, just in and around the tennis club from the age of four or five. Um, and equally as competitive, I guess, I was, I was into competing early doors and loved it. Um, and I guess in, in junior terms, I had a reasonably successful start to competition. And that was it, really. I was off and competing here, there and everywhere much, I suppose, when we met, first met yeah. back in you know, mid-80s, I guess, late 80s. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just just trekking trekking around and and loving the competition, really. Um, and I think that the structure at that time, I I feel in looking back was pretty good actually. Yeah. Um, I, I think there was there was no rankings per se. Everybody kind of knew, oh. you know. I put you in that top bracket as it were. Of we knew who was the top four or five. Um, 
but there, there was less of a less of a fixation on ratings and rankings and more about you know I'd go into a tournament and love the love the idea of trying to outdo and outmaneuver everybody else to win the tournament yeah. irrespective of ratings or rankings or anything like that at, yeah. at an early age certainly I think we we competed a lot as well I, I feel as if there was there was a lot of opportunities to compete not necessarily strategically it wasn't like a strategic let's we have to compete here to do this but let's just compete i mean we would come across each other every two or three weeks around the around the country yeah for sure and considering you know i was from the east coast and you're up up north there that that it was amazing the amount of uh traveling we did but yeah. as you said it wasn't you know it wasn't for points per se it was like uh i suppose regional I can't even think what they were called, regional tours, winter, you know, you qualified mm -hmm. for the winter national tours, the Adidas challenges that you'd just yeah. be getting bucket loads of matches. And that's, that's, I suppose, linking to the progress tour. It's what inspired me a little bit is that to get back to the core of why we compete. It's not, yeah, yeah. It's not to be a 1.1 or it's not to be yeah. ranked in the top 20 in the country. It's, to, it's for the love of it and to ultimately get better. And I think, Along the way, we've lost sight of that a little bit. And you, you mentioned going back to you know our formative years. We had VW ratings, and yeah. it's just it's just that 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 opportunity to compete against different players. And I think, yeah, I, I I think that that's what I enjoyed most as a kid. And I think it's what we have lost sight of a little bit. Yeah, and and absolutely. And I mean, I remember being age ten playing against someone age forty-five. You know, and I think that's what I've loved about the Progress Tour events as well. And I think some people are sceptical at first because they think, well, I don't want to play against a girl. Or a girl thinks, well, I don't want to play against a boy or I don't want to play someone who's much older. But the whole kind of level-based way, way of working is is ultimately actually how it used to work back in our day. But I, I, it's actually the way it works in Spain as well because... How, how it works in Spain is they just have really big draw sizes, you know, so pretty much you enter a tournament, you get in a tournament. So if you, if you turn up and you're not ranked so highly, okay, maybe you win your first two or three matches quite easily, but then you make your way through very quickly to, to players of similar level. And, and that's, I guess that's the whole concept that you've got going. Yeah. I think, you know, I never, the UTR, I, I think came second to me it was I wanted to do a prize money event and I wanted to underpin it with something that wasn't the LTA rating yeah. system um, and I took some persuading to do that cross cross age cross gender thing yeah. um, and the first event you know I think our youngest player 11 year old girl played a 71 year old bloke right. and they, they had a humdinger of a match it was 12 10 in the champs high break yeah. um, and I was kind of sold on it from then really I think yeah. The, the, for sure, you know the level-based element is so it's so beneficial um, for certain levels of players. I've I, as time's gone on, I've kind of thought, you know, it works great up to that level, and then actually yeah. beyond that level, it, it 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 doesn't need to be there. I think you know, the amount of female events that girl that girls events in the UK that get cancelled because there isn't enough players, I think that's a a travesty. And what why should we not mix? mix events as you say like in Spain is to make sure that everybody plays um, so yeah I mean that, that that as an ethos was great it's what set the progress tour out as being different I guess when we started yeah. um, and as things have gone on you know that the women's only event is a good example that I've, I've started to 
to split the events as they progress through to the higher levels because I think you know it, it, the, the cross gender has its place and the cross age has its place but then I think there's yeah. a place for it to be male female split also yeah and, and as we move our way through your I guess your playing career we take you up to kind of 17 18 you know very good player one of the best players in the country why didn't you go to US college I don't know about the best, one of the best players in the country. I was knocking on the door, trying. <laughs> you were up there. You were absolutely yeah. up there. Yeah, you, you, you were. Anyway, yeah, I, get to the question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I had no idea what I was doing. I, I've, I've spoken on a podcast about this before. I was clueless, uh, to be honest. And yeah. I, I wanted to leave school at 16 and play full time because that was the, the done thing. I think it's yeah. what you did. Um, my parents didn't let me do that and I'm thankful for that really yeah. um, and I, I finished A-levels I, I then I had a place at university in Manchester to do business straight from A-levels I then you know I played a couple of futures I lost it first round qualies and thought I'm no good can't do this um, so I decided to go and play a Brit tour in Cambridge um, before going to university, I thought I'd play one more event. And I went to Cambridge. I won that event at Brit Tour, um, beat one of our old friends, James Auckland, in the final. Um, and I then, you know, I was offered a contract. Rebart was offered a place at Sutton to train on the national squad. The following week, I was in Asia and I, you know, picked up probably 12, 13 ATP points on that trip. And, you know, that was off the back of me deciding to give up. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't want to downplay my playing career, but I, I felt like I stumbled into it and I stumbled out yeah. of it, really. Yeah, yeah. I did, you know, the, the decision on going to college, each time I came back from my my travels and competing, um, I, you know, I'd have, uh, e not emails back in those days, but my mum would say we had a call from so-and-so in California or a letter from this person in yeah you know where you went to actually lsu and yeah it's like no 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 i'm not i'm not doing that i'm on, I'm on my way somewhere else um naively <laughs> thinking yeah. that i was i was on the path to greatness and i i regret it. it's one of my biggest regrets is yep. you know I was, I was physically and mentally not ready to do what i was trying to do to try and play yep. professionally and i i got to 700 atp within about six months of playing, but, you know, without any clue as to why or what I was doing, my, yep. I, I, I had a fairly set game style because I was pretty limited. Um, I knew what to do to win, but yeah, I, I wish I'd gone to America and learned my trade a little bit, uh, matured physically, mentally, readied myself at the, the age of 22, yep. 23, where I felt like I, I could have given it a better crack at that age, really. Yeah. And do you, is that why you think you're a big advocate of the U.S. college system now? Well, I am. I think, you know, I talked about it before that at the time where we were 16, 18, that was deemed a failed route, in, yeah. as I it remember was. it. it yeah. was, yeah. If, if you did it, it was like, well, they're, they're giving up, they're doing that. Um, and, and that's why I think everybody wanted to go full time. Um, and I think... The, the American college route is such such a good route for so many. Um, I think, you know, in the same vein that 
going full time was the thing back 20 years ago. I think going to college is the done thing now. Yeah, yeah. Um, something Sarah Bullwell and I talk a lot about is, you know, we're launching a program at the moment that is is highlighting all pathways, not just yeah, absolutely. You know, you know a, 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 I suppose a trend that everybody does that or they do that. We should be educating and advising players as to all the options you know from the age of 14 15 they should know exactly what an american college route looks like a british university route a career in tennis a pro career that i don't think we do that well enough really so i'm a big supporter of american college but i'm a big supporter a bigger supporter of educating and advising uh young players so they know exactly what options there are no very good i mean I, i would even argue younger i mean uh, because you can still the amount of players over the years I had that got to eighteen and were like, actually, I think I will go to college, but then can't, <laughs> you know. And yeah. it might, and it might be. I mean, even Evan Hoyt, Evan Hoyt, who I coach, he was going to go to college, but it fell down because of something that happened when he was twelve. Yeah, you know. So I, I, I think that that education process in my opinion i don't know whether they do talent id days or these whatever days that they call them anymore but i think we should be educating the the roots and, and also the returns on investment to that journey at a, at, a, at a really early age you know this is what yeah. you're signing up to this is the sport guess what you lose a lot <laughs> guess what it's this this you know let's give some realities you know guess what you're going to get injured at times. Guess what? You're yeah. going to get cheated yeah. at times. Um, but guess what? It's going to set you up incredibly well for life if you if you commit to this journey and it's going to open up X, Y, Z pathway because the, the same as you, I, I fell into it again. Uh, I think I said it on the Noah Rubin podcast. I've been fortunate fortunate enough to be just crap enough to almost fall into some of these different things and, yeah. and and exactly what you said it was it was deemed as failure when i was 17 18 for me to go to us college you know and i wasn't it was never on the radar but it was like you know what dan maybe not quite good enough so do you want to go to college and, yeah. and 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 then i remember coming out and i won't name names but i'd been out of college for 6 months i'd won a futures title and I got told, Dan, you're, you're nearly 23 and you're only 700 in the world. You, you know, I don't think it's good enough. And it was like, hold on a minute, I've, <laughs> I've just been playing for six months. So that, it, but that, uh, hopefully that story gives a bit of an example of just how uneducated we were on it yeah. and, and how, you know, how, how important that job of educating the different options and, and, and also the positives. Because I think in our sport, people are very quick to pick up on the negatives, but if they understand that as part of the process that eventually becomes a positive, then I think we put a much brighter light on, on the fantastic sport that is tennis. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think, I know you've spoken to Johnny on one of Johnny Mary on one of your previous podcasts yeah. and you did a couple of, uh, I suppose, Q and A's with, with players that have followed different routes and you know what comes to comes to light from speaking to people that there's no one route and there's not one person that can go if you want to be a player that's what you have to do and johnny johnny maz is a great example of that that you know that was not on the radar as a junior at all but yeah ultimately achieved the biggest thing in in the, the game and i think the more options and the more awareness like you said from an early age but also parental advice and guidance is you know, pe- people's goals may shift, but 
if you if you keep options open at the age of 15 go actually i'm not going to do that i'm going to do that we, we shouldn't exclude any option at any age i don't Absolutely. think no no com completely agree and and then when why did you stop and when did you stop playing i remember it clearly yeah. i was at ilkley brit tour i uh, there was a couple of there was a couple of junctions when i was playing that i you know i was 19 700 um i had a couple of near misses at some bigger 25k 25 plus h i think uh satellites in australia that i felt like i wasted three months uh over there i lost six and a third five and a third you know i was whiskers away from picking up a, a bucket load of points and i i suppose that was one of the junctures that i didn't quite push on like I wanted to. So I was 700 then at 19. And I, you know, three years later, I was the same. I was going nowhere really. And I, I suppose those, those deep rooted doubts I had at the age of 18, <laughs> I should go to university and I'm not good enough to make it. I kind of, it, I came to the realization that I wasn't going to push on for whatever reason. I think that the reason I stopped was ultimately finance. Yeah. I, I, I was in a fair bit of debt and I was playing a, a Brit tour up in Ilkley against Jason Torpy, who I know you know very well. Uh, and I remember the night before, I just did not sleep a wink because I was like, what, what am I doing here? I'm, you know, I can't pay that. And I've got that, that debt collector knocking on my parents' door. And I just thought, it's, you know, time is, the time is now. And I played that match and that was it. And I, in, again, in hindsight, you know, I had no choice really but to stop. But it only serves as a reminder that I wish I played a few years later for a, you know for a bet to get an ATP point when I was 25, 26, um, and I felt more able at that age to yeah. to compete and more mature. And it and it serves as a reminder that I wish I'd done it the other way round and yeah. and learnt my trade a little bit before I went full on into. I suppose a bit, bit like you, you did, and and a few of the other guys did. Is it's a marathon, not a sprint. And I ultimately had, didn't know what I was doing, and that's why I stopped early. Is I just ran into a wall, really. Um, so yeah, that I mean, the finance was the reason, but ultimately, you know, I wasn't good enough to to make what I wanted to make of the game. You weren't good enough at that time, and 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 that's that's what I want. That's my big motivation on these podcasts, actually. You know, it's to get these stories out there because it's time and time and time again, we're hearing these stories where people aren't advised in the right way, they're not educated in the right way, and maybe that education's not always, not always out there. But I think we know enough now that probably six, seven, eight years maximum you can have on on what I would call the the futures tour and maybe challenger tour. You know, if you're if you start playing grand slams, then I think the longevity in the sport grows. <laughs> but if you if you're not hitting slams, there's there's not a whole amount of time. And the amount of players we also know that the ages between 18 and 22 are very very formative in terms of so many things. And if you're not good enough at 18 to be in my opinion, winning futures, then you need to find a way of filling that gap to 22 <laughs> so you can actually have your shot of those six or seven years to catapult into being a Grand Slam player 
um, which is where where it's at in our game in in, in order to, to to make money. Well, when you are more emotionally, physically, mentally ready, and the amount of players that burn themselves in those four years, eighteen to twenty-two, and waste pretty much their career. That's me. Uh, yeah, but but funny, you know, it's uh, I suppose going back to the progress tour is that we we historically have funded players a lot you know a hell of a lot at a young age and when you know I've I haven't listened to all your podcasts with chinks but you know I used him as a a great example of someone who was supported fully at a young age but when he really needed it when he you know at the age of 22 when you know we're adults we don't have mum and dad supporting we might have rent we might have mortgage for me that is uh the time that players really need support and it's it's not you know whether that support comes in way of battle of the brits st george's hill pro tour events the opportunity for players to earn a living and i think that you know going back to my passion for doing it is i think we support fully at a young age and then you're on your own and that that we've lost generations of players uh i suppose chinks being an example and, and a generation more recently to that even that, that come 23, 24, there isn't, there isn't enough opportunity to retain those players in the game. And for me, I, I remember you know, playing Brit Tours and playing against Nick Wheel and losing five weeks in a row and Tom Spinks and Paul Hand. And I think we have lost that uh, strata of player that, you know, that as an 18-year-old that, that comes out now, they're playing Brit Tours and winning them. And there, there is no other players actually playing in the UK the players are all off chasing ranking points and our general strength of the game here has suffered because of that Um, so going back to your point of supporting players 22 23 24 yeah it takes it takes time and we know that but we have lacked an infrastructure in my view to actually help players to get through that that sticky period into their mid-20s where absolutely they can have a shot and I think that that was there 20 years ago and and it has to be there again now whether that's you know like I said I'm not a big fan of selecting players and saying we'll support you with 100 grand a year I'm more a fan of let's put a a, you know a shit hot money event on a money series that runs throughout the years like like I have tried to do and like St George's Hill are planning to do I shouldn't call it St George's Hill the UK pro series is you know that why can't we do the equivalent of the, the German league, the French league, where players, we can have 50, 60, 70 players that actually are full-time professionals earning a living because that, that can only be positive for the, the all-round health of British tennis. Absolutely. Nothing to add. You've said it, you've said it very well. Um, and now, so, so you've stopped playing. You, I guess, started coaching straight away or pretty much straight away? Yeah, I, I actually, talking about pathways, I, the day I stopped and lost to Jason Torpy, I, <laughs> I, I signed up to do a degree, a psychology degree. Um, right, okay. And I, I then, you know, actually carried on competing a little bit. We actually went on a few British teams to, to play against American co- colleges through my time at British University, which again only, only served to remind me of what I'd missed out on with American college. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I went into coaching. I ran a club with uh, James Smith in Rygate. That's right. Um, yeah. t- tried to develop an indoor centre there, which uh, took 
took a lot of effort and time to get going. Um, yeah, so I've coached, coached probably the last 20 years now, um, various HPCs and I'm a career coach, I guess, and the tournament stuff is, is a passion that's run on, on top of that, really, which I, yeah. I, I try and balance the, the workload, really. Yeah. Yeah, because I think our, I guess our our paths were quite similar up until eighteen. But then I went the US college way. You did your three or four years on the tour at eighteen. <laughs> I did mine after college. But by the time I'd finished college, you, you weren't around anymore. So we kind of went 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 apart a little bit. And then then the next I'd heard of you, I heard I heard that you'd you'd got cancer and you'd had your you had your illness. So tell tell us about that. Funnily enough, I had surgery on my birthday, my 28th birthday. Okay. Um, it was three weeks after I got married. I, I suppose I had a little bit of discomfort uh, in a certain area and put it off, discounted it at something else. My wife encouraged me to get it checked out. Yep. Um, that was on the Friday, Friday the 7th of June. I remember it very clearly. Yeah. Um, and went in for a quick checkup, and I, in minutes they uh, were fairly urgently getting me in for a scan, and they were pretty sure it was a tumour. Um, so from being kind of uh, carefree going into this appointment, um, I came out with a bit of a shock, really. And it was I played a match on the the Sunday, an NCL match. I clearly remember on the Sunday, and went in for surgery on the Monday. So fairly immediate. Sure. Um, it, it was a tumour and that the process was to remove the tumour uh, with immediate effect and then do a biopsy. Um, so, yeah, it was a bit of a shock to the system, really. And the whole journey, you know, from the surgery onwards to, you know, each stage of it, seeing how serious it was, I, I, I didn't really... Now, that's why, you know, I said to you when you asked about talking about it, I'm happy to talk about it because I think it's it's a topic that isn't discussed enough. And I suppose that when you talk to people about cancer, everybody without fail has been touched by it in some, some way, you know, whether it's yeah. a family member, a close friend. And it's something I think that the more is discussed, the better, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's huge. And the, the process I went through, you know, I was fortunate from the outset really, well, almost from the outset that, that I had a good outlook and the chances of cure were quite good. But I think I, along each, each kind of checkup and exactly, you know, the test results came back, I readied for good news and I got bad news. Um, yeah. You know, it started to, the cancer, it was testicular cancer and it had started to spread uh, yeah. up in, up a bit higher. And then I was, you know, getting tests to see how far it had, had spread. Um, and each each step of that journey, I think I'd readied for good, you know, friends and family were like, oh, it'd be fine. It's nothing. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. You'll be over this before you know it. And I, I think the last time I went in, um, I, I readied for, it was the only time I readied for bad news was, you know, I yeah. asked my wife, my, uh, my wife uh, not to come in with me because I wanted to be able to ask some, some tricky questions, I suppose, that, you know, might have unpleasant answers. And that was the only time I readied for, for bad yeah. news, really. And fortunately, it wasn't that bad news. It, you know, like I said, from, from that point, I knew there was a, a way out of it for me. Um, but, I mean, it was, a, it was a humbling experience, to say the least. And, you know, yeah. like I said, I, I, 
met some amazing people um you know the doctors nurses everybody in the nhs and and i would say it's still now my experience of the nhs is you know people complain about it but when when you are in need they right. are there and they are amazing uh, as we've seen i think in this you know the, in this period that we've just gone through um but you know that that it was humbling to see that and it was also humbling to share to share uh, rooms and you know treatment treatment rooms with with people that you know that that confronted their illness and much worse than i ever had to cope with with such bravery it made me realize how fortunate i was to to have a way out because it's uh yeah it's a dark illness and i think it's i i you know i did an event a few years ago because i i and i don't want to forget what i went through i think it's yeah, important yeah. to talk about it um to raise awareness and to, to keep keep it in people's minds because i think it's like i said it touches so many people um and i don't want to forget what i went through really i'm for, i'm fortunate to come through the other side of it but many aren't absolutely and how so how long was kind of how long did you have the illness how long was that whole process uh it was i suppose four months of treatment like yeah chemo, four i think three cycles of chemo besides surgery and then chemotherapy that was pretty dark really um remember being best best man for my brother right in the middle of that and just being unable to stand up and talk really at his wedding and the whole wedding mm. being in, in tears at the sight of this balding uh cancer patient at the time but it was pretty pretty dark few months but i uh i suppose september i finished treatment um and it took me a while to actually be able to do anything again i, I woke up i mean an added um complexity of what i went through was i woke up from that surgery on my birthday with a, a paralyzed shoulder right shoulder Oh wow! Uh, you know the morphine wore off, and I couldn't actually lift up a glass of water to have a drink. So uh, it was the least of my worries at the time. But you know, I was told I wouldn't be able to play tennis again. And I suppose post chemo, when I realised you know life life continues, and I wanted to get back to it, I I couldn't actually go back to to do what I loved doing, which was competing. Yeah. Uh, even hitting a ball at that time was a struggle. Um, so it took me. It was a year off, a year off work, really, all in all, before I could, I could get back to hitting a tennis ball, um, and competing. It took me longer. I, you know, I couldn't actually lift my arm up for over a year above shoulder height. Um, so it was kind of impactful in that way, and you know, yeah. the implications of not, you know, I, various things. Uh, we we owned a house at the time, having just bought bought a house just before getting married and we had to sell that because I didn't have health insurance so it was it was quite impactful in many ways really in my, my health and also the knock-on effects from that really so yeah be, I mean being told not that I wouldn't be able to play tennis again it was it was the following summer that I actually I took over as camp captain in Norfolk and I started serving with a sidearm action right, okay. uh, and I just started playing again really and I loved it um probably about 50 60 percent ability wise i couldn't really serve but i just kept playing kept playing and it got stronger um you know to the point where actually i played played a futures event won a, a futures doubles event that, I, remember, that summer. I remember that yeah and i you know i was still probably 60 70 percent of a shoulder then and and yep. bloom bloomers and i 
beat Dom Dom Inglot. I reminded Dom of that last week. Actually. <laughs> uh, but that that was hugely satisfying. To, you know that oh. I, I couldn't lift my arm up, and then three months later, I was able to, you know, to go back to doing something that I absolutely love doing. And I, I think, as with anything, when you're told you can't do something, it makes you realise just how much you love it and I that's I suppose that the thing for me is post that period I, I realized how much I loved competing still yeah and I still love competing yeah and do you think I mean obviously you've talked about how humbled you are by the experience and how, how much do you think it has changed your outlook on on everything to, to have gone through that experience uh, it, it, it has uh, it did and I think I had great uh, visions of, of what I would do differently and how I would li- live life differently. Yeah. And that's, that's why I like to have it in here, you know, in my head and, and not to forget it because I think it's easy to be yeah. distracted, get lost in yeah. life, I guess. And I, I, I suppose I like to bring it back and ground myself as to what's, what's important because it's easy to, you know, I probably you know, many a time since then, I, I get swept up in something and I lose sight of, you know, what's oh. important in life. And I, that's why I, I suppose I like to keep it, keep it in, in my yeah. head and to bring me back to what is important because I, I had, you know, perspective changes, but then, yeah, you follow a route and you lose sight yeah, of, yeah. of that perspective. So it, it did, it did bring perspective, but equally that, that for me shifts and ebbs and flows, I guess. And how much, do you think the skills that you'd picked up through your tennis helped you during that period? If at all. Through the, the, the period post, post. No, I, yeah, I think, I, I suppose, how do you think the skills that you, you picked up in tennis regarding the, the mindset, the mentality, the dealing with disappointment, the, all of those things, do you think they helped you? when you when you were given the, the the news of the illness and how you kind of fought through that for the, for those few months yeah uh, yeah i guess it did uh, it did it not be for six that's for sure it's it's something i guess it's something that always uh, you know i thought would be happen to someone else not not me not anybody close to me i suppose um yeah. and like i said it takes takes me back to my point that it's, it's you know it's something that was over my head I guess and I, it knocked me for six that's for sure but then it becomes about the the next appointment and the ne- you know the end of the treatment and you just I suppose you know whether that's tennis or just the, the you know hand in hand I suppose the mindset of a of a, someone that competes and it's you set the next you know the next yeah. goal the next barrier to overcome um uh, yeah I, I guess that was the way I dealt with it you can't look beyond that it was the the next you know break it down to the one step at a time rather than three four months down the line because it's it's so difficult when you go through that to, to look beyond the, the here yeah, and now course. of course um, and in that way that was the way I I tried to cope with it I suppose was just yeah. the next milestone the next marker yeah yeah, because I think even the, the mentality that you touched on there, I, I know that I'm a big believer in kind of preempt techniques, you know, and I like, and I'm going to, I'm going to 
bring it back to tennis and then not that I'm comp- completely comparing tennis to going through cancer but I think in terms of just how we deal with things mentally and it's really interesting to me that you talked about how you readied yourself for bad news and 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 I, I certainly think with players I think if players go into a tennis match and they preempt that they might not play well today they they might receive bad calls they might miss an easy backhand on break point they, they there's all of these things that you kind of sign up to being as a being a tennis player in that these things might happen when those things do happen they're easier to deal with and i don't know if that's a similar mentality yeah i suppose it's their willingness to accept isn't it that yeah yeah i was having this conversation only yesterday i think it's it's you have to accept certain things that, you know, the things that you can control. And I suppose in that period that, that I felt very out of control and there's, you know, you have to, you have to accept that certain things might happen. Um, And I guess after that, the first couple of appointments where I hadn't readied for that, I just felt like, you know, I needed to, to accept that there could be that outcome or, or a a more negative one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I think so. I think that, you know sport in anything like that that the acceptance of what is 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 vital isn't it to be able to overcome it if you yeah. can't accept what might happen it's yeah. insurmountable yeah yeah and my uh, obviously we're, we're on the podcast control the controllables which is, is something we talk about so much but that is the one thing that's always scared me about control the controllables is the one the one thing that's out of our control that really there's nothing we can do about it is if it does become a terminal illness you know i think like almost anything else in life okay that's what it is <laughs> we accept yeah. the situation and and it's not a great situation but we're going to deal with it the pandemic you know it's not a great situation however right we've got to accept what it is right, how, what can we do now and yeah. when, when we're talking about a potential terminal illness then that that's going to test mentalities more than more than anything else that there is out there. That's for sure. Yeah. In in terms of in terms of where you're at now with your career, do you see do you see yourself going a little bit more in the direction of of tournaments, coach? You know, where uh, combining them both still? Yeah, I think uh, I have a lot of ideas, Dan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, and I think, I suppose the last few years, and I suppose the perspective you you mentioned that 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 uh, period of my life, and I guess since then, and uh, more probably the last three or four years, that is trying to follow the, those ideas through. I have lots of ideas of different different things and different uh, needs. I suppose all related to tennis and sport, which is my passion. I suppose and. I made a vow, I suppose, a few years ago is to rather than just have great ideas, and you know, like I said, is complain about there should be money events, there should be this, is actually to yeah. do something about it. And I, that's what I've found the last few years is those ideas I've had, I've started to pursue them, uh, which in the last, I suppose, the, the six months before lockdown meant that, that, that quite a few of them were coming to fruition and gaining traction, which meant I was kind of overloaded with lots of exciting projects, but um, just, I suppose, a little bit wary of stretching myself too thin, too thinly on all of them. Um, 
and all of them I have a huge passion for and I am a you know a huge belief in in their need and how you know that the fact that they are good ideas and that they're needed um so where do I see it going is to um you know there's a, there's a project I mentioned with Sarah Borwell the progress tour um the tournament side of it I, I would really like to expand the progress tour I love what it represents you know, the program I run, I suppose, in short answer to your question, I'm going to keep juggling the balls and just uh, really work hard to manage my time so I can do each of them and give each of them the time it deserves and do them justice, I suppose. I don't want to let any of them go because I'm a firm believer in all of them. Um, yeah. yeah, so, so yeah, in answer to your question, the coaching program, I'm... I'm just spending some time again getting back to the project, developing the site where we, we're currently at in the University of Sussex in Brighton. We've got a, a, a programme down here, which is a bit different. It's an open door policy. Um, you know, we're in limited facilities, but we've got a booming programme. So just trying to push that at the moment as we come out of this, this period to really upgrade the, the facilities we have there. Um, but at the same time, you know, the progress tour and seeing... You know, off the back of the, the women's championships where the, the event got such good exposure and it was far bigger than I originally planned and it, it had challenges, but it's it, it's given the progress to a great platform, I think. So I want to pursue all of them still and I'm just kind of working on managing my time and trying to relinquish, I suppose. I'm a bit of a doer. Like I said, I try and do it all myself and just trying to manage that a little bit better. So I can give give each of them each of the projects the time it deserves. It must be a 1980 thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, I, I often think that the devil that is ambition. You know, I, I I again love I love having the the ambition and the passion and all of these things going on. But I do sometimes think to myself, maybe maybe ambition is a is a devil that that keeps us keeps pushing us into these things that overload us. But no, mate, you're doing you're doing an amazing an amazing job. I've got a lot of admiration for everything that you've done, and I think it's been also fantastic. You're talking about your your illness so openly, and you know, I'm sure people listening that will have a big effect. Like you said, it cancer touches everybody in, in in some way, you know, and it's it's very real. Um, and and the fact that you've spoken so openly, I, I I really appreciate, it and I'm sure the listeners do. I have one more question before we go on our quick fire related to that. We haven't touched on your playing career as a bit of an oldie, you know, and you've had a lot of success and you know, being Great Britain captain for many years uh, for the over 35s. Do you think that perspective that we've, that we've touched on made you realise, maybe brought gratitude and how lucky you are to be playing and having your health and those things? And do you think that's one of the reasons why you've carried on your playing careers, career, career so long? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, it, it was probably even before Vets, actually. When I was 33, I... I suppose a bit more immediate. I hadn't competed for a while, really. I played yeah. county, county captain. I did odd bits, but I played a Brit tour when I was 33 and loved it. And I, I then got into, you know, I played a lot then actually, and I was yeah. coaching and I, it was probably more then I realized, you know, I won a couple of Brit tours back to back uh, at that age, got into the master of the Brit tour and I just loved it. I, yeah. it, you know, everything 
going back to what I said, that the thought that I might not be able to do that, and I was suddenly playing against guys half my age. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, uh, I loved, you know, like I said, the, the, the perspective of acceptance. You know, I, could, I know I could look after the kids and coach 50 hours and get in the yeah. car and sleep two hours and still find a way to compete. And I think yeah. the perspective of that uh, made me realise and appreciate that part of it, the simplicity yeah, of playing yeah. British Tour, for example. So that, that I suppose at that age, it then, you know, when I went into seniors tennis, uh, you know, even before I hit my 35th year, I was chomping at the bit to have a new goal, if you like. Yeah. Um, and the team, you know, I love going back to what we said about team stuff. I, that's what floats my boat the most about the, yep. the senior yep. stuff is the world champs. Um, you know, and I, I was captain, fortunate enough to be captain four out of the five years I, I uh, played 35s. Um, and I, I loved it. And that's, I suppose, that the other individual stuff I did as a vehicle to, to make sure I could get stuck in with the team team stuff, really. But, yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a competitor at heart and I, I love having that goal yeah. of competition. And I've got a few injuries and niggles again at the moment. But having moved on up like you have, I'll be, I'll be knocking on your door for the over 40s team <laughs> next year. But, yeah, I, I love it. I love the competition. When, whenever it gets to an age category where nobody can move, then then it just comes down to maybe a bit of hand skill. Then give me the call up. There's too, the, the guys are killing me physically still. You know, they're still too physical. Maybe we get to fifties, fifty fives. No, I think we're looking seventies, mate. <laughs> they, <they're> pro- <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine. I can imagine yeah. they're really physical to it for a uh, long time. Super competitive. It's great. It's great to see it at that level. You know, I, I saw an over 85s final in Romania, which ended in fisticuffs. Really? Yeah, just so competitive. And that—that's you know, it's something you don't appreciate until you get into seniors tennis. Is yeah. How how many people? You know, it is a game for life. And yeah, yeah, I went into it a bit blind to to exactly what was involved. And you know, seniors yeah. tennis is is huge. And for you to keep that level, do you have to train? No, no, I, uh, I suppose just, just coaching a lot, spending hours on court. Um, I think now I felt it the last few years more than ever, uh, injuries take longer to recover from. Um, and I've, I've paid the price, you know, I feel like I can, I could go and compete with a 20 something year old and I still feel like I can hit the ball well, but it takes, it takes a long time to recover. So a week, you know, a week in Miami last year, uh, it, 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 to do back-to-back days, I'm, I'm starting to realise that, I mean, I'm a bit old to realise this, but I'm starting to realise <laughs> I need to invest in the body a bit more, you know, to, to retain and prevent injury, I guess. So that, if I ask that question again, now, if you're still trying to play to a high level, rather than do you train, should you train? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Every every time I, I, oh god, I've got to train better. But it's time, you know. It's it's you make the time to do it, and I, yeah, I. Uh, it's a New Year's resolution every year. <laughs> but, uh, get into yoga, Pilates, stretch. But yeah, I think it's it's ever more important, really. Oh, well, fair play to you. Um, we're gonna we're gonna move into the quick fire, quick fire round. Um, competition or training? Competition. Team or individual? Team. UK or abroad? UK. Serve or return? 
serve <laughs> can't return <laughs> skill or technique skill big believer injury timeout or not no best of five at slams for men or not yes ATP or Davis Cup uh, Davis Cup and one rule change that you would have in tennis I don't know. That is, <laughs> I'm, I'm beating the quick fire here. I mean, we, we've experimented with so many. I, there's, there's, you know, I'm a bit of a traditionalist in the fact that I, I love it how it is, to be honest. I, I don't think we need to faff with it too much. And you see some of the exciting things that come out. I, I love tennis as it is. Sorry, that wasn't quick fire. Oh, the edit. You wait for the edit. That's going <laughs> to that, look as if you've just absolutely fired that out. Or, or I could make you look silly and make it just, just drag on for like <laughs> for two minutes. Um, Baz, it's been, it's been great. I, I actually forgot that we were doing a podcast. I was just enjoying having a chat with you. Um, and it's, it's great to see and, and, a, and a big well done for all the fantastic things that you're doing. Make sure you're taking some time for yourself and your family as well. Uh, this work thing can take over if you're not careful but uh, a big well done and thank you for joining us thanks for having me on Dan and keep up the great work with the podcast it's great thanks a lot mid cheers thanks a lot for that Barry hope everyone enjoyed the episode Uh, I'd like to have a little shout out to people around the world listening to this podcast I was I was looking on the app that I use and I was like, Whoa, this is people have been listening in eight or nine different countries and I thought, Well that's that's good. It's good that it's starting to spread. And then I, I actually went onto the application on my laptop uh yesterday, just yesterday. And when you go on the app on the laptop, it actually opens up to show all of the countries. Um and what I'd realized is the app on the iPad that I use doesn't show. And I started counting and I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah, but scroll, scroll. And I got up to 71 countries. Now we we set this podcast up only three, four months ago now. Uh, with as as those that regularly listened, our idea was to to energize, to entertain and to educate you know and and we we hope that we would touch the hearts of some people we hope that people would take some some nice lessons from it and and the fact that now we're in 71 different countries in the world it's it's incredible um we have we have no plans to stop we've got plans to continue growing continue bringing some amazing guests and we just want to say a big thank you, a big hello, wherever you are listening to this in the world. Uh, we really, really love having you on board and part of the Control the Controllables community that we want to continue growing. So big thank you to all of you. Thank you for spreading the word. Thank you for sharing with your friends. Thank you for all the kind comments. And we'll do our very best to continue bringing all the best content that we possibly can and these amazing guests okay my name is Dan Kiernan my co-host John McGann we are control the controllables